Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. everybody. Hello there. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, which has been going on for a long time, many, many years, over a decade at least. Um, so I run this, Ellen Datlow. You all know me, but anyway, okay. And Matthew Kressel, we've been co-hosting for several years now. Welcome. Um, um, thank you for coming out in this very cold weather, but at least it's not snowing or raining. And uh, we have a good reading, set of reading, readers tonight, but just so you know, first of all, we have books for sale back there by both readers. I'm not sure what titles are there. It's all around us. Okay. And, and uh, we have one copy of Keen's book. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. And uh, over the next few months, we have, uh-oh. Shoot, what did I do with it? Yeah, this one? Yeah. Oh, is that, I don't know, is it? No, well, that's mine. Oh, that's yours. All right, I don't know what happened to mine. Okay, maybe I forgot to take it out of the printer. Anyway, over the next few months, we've got April 19th, Seth Dickinson and Laura Ann Gilman. May 17th, Sam J. Miller and E.C. Myers. June, okay, yes. Yeah, go on, go on, it's okay. June 21st, um, Catherine and Valente and Sunny Moraine. Uh, July 19th, Karen Hewler and TBA. Um, August 16th, Rajan Khanna and TBA. September 20th, Catherine Vaz and Chris Sharp. October 18th, Kaya Shante Wilson, TBA. And uh, we might have further, but we didn't, I don't know who, we, we didn't, we don't have this printed out. <clears throat> so, Oh, by the way, for those who haven't heard, a Hawaiian federal judge has um, put an injunction against the Muslim ban, at least. So that's not going through the board. And, okay, our first reader tonight is Nova Rensuma. She's the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Walls Around Us, which was a finalist for an Edgar Award and was named a Best Book of 2015 by the Boston Globe, NPR, School Library Journal, and The Horn Book. She also wrote the surreal and strange YA novels Imaginary Girls and Seventeen and Gone. Her short story, The Birds of Azalea Street, was reprinted in the year's best YA science fiction and fantasy, volume three. She lives in New York City. Please welcome Nova. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming out on a snowy day. So I would be reading the opening of The Walls Around Us, which is what I normally read. Um, that book is here for sale. It's a ghostly story of suspense set in a girls, all-girls juvenile detention center and a ballet school. But actually, the first time I ever read from that book was here in this, in this ser series, like a few years ago. 
And um, so I'm not going to repeat myself, and I'm going to read something new. I'll be reading from a short story that I'm working on. It is not the whole story. I'll uh, stop when I find a, I have a good moment to stop at. And right now, the story, it's in progress, but it's called When the World Ended. For now, we'll see. This is how they tried to punish me, even though they couldn't prove a thing. They buried me. They called it a game. They buried me in a nest of debris, without an open airway and without a peak of light, and left me there to lie there under it all, waiting for the cue to dig myself out. They did the burying in the furnished basement, where their parents, my aunt, and my uncle wouldn't catch them. The closets and storage shelves provided plenty of burial equipment, Blankets and zippered sleeping bags and couch cushions weighted down with moldy encyclopedias, plus heavier, pointier things like the free weights, the cross-country skis and the winter sleds, and once, the ping-pong table sprawled over me like a toppled house. It was a game we played as children, my cousins and me, only a game. It was like being buried in sand at the beach, except my head wasn't allowed out for air, and no one carved a curvy mermaid body over top my skinny, flat-chested body trapped below. The game was to bury me alive, and then, once they said I was allowed to, to witness me break free. More than once, they waited the entire length of an afternoon. I missed lunch. My organs constricted from the weight, and I wondered if they'd ever let me out. If I died under there, how would they explain it to their parents? But it never went that far, because always, finally, I'd hear someone tell Kate to come out, and then I'd push aside pillows and ski poles, and I'd crawl out and I'd stand up on two wobbling legs to show I lived still. Misha, the oldest of my cousins, the one who was my age, invented this game and called it Tornado. But really, it was the aftermath of the tornado she was reproducing, she avoided what came before, what stole the people and wrecked the houses and scattered the cows and cars across the county. She forgot the wind. What I never told Misha or any of my cousins was how the sun got bagged up in darkness and there were no holes for light to poke through. Rain shattered the silence, then wind overpowered the rain. Before it got so dark, I saw some things, like how there was a dog and then there was a leash hooked around a wrist, and no dog. I saw the darkened clouds hovering overhead and then swiftly descending, the force of wind lifting a trio of milk cows into the sky, stumpy legs churning, the pickup truck flattened to a slip of paper, and the hot rod on cinder blocks that sailed for miles without wheels, the red barn dancing with chickens high up in what had been once been a blue sky, then the bodies and the buildings dropping, the cascade of falling telephone poles and trees. After came the quiet made of nothing, the quiet of everything swallowed and gone. It's a kind of quiet I don't think humans were ever meant to hear. All my cousins were aware of back then was that I came to live with them almost 10 years ago because of a tornado that destroyed my hometown. They knew the Red Cross had rescued me and maybe they'd seen that dramatic scene replayed on the TV news the aftermath, the surrounding cornfields littered with debris, the whole area scattered with random personal items plucked from once secret crevices in the town's houses, a geometry notebook doodled with isosceles triangles and balloon hearts, 
the grocery list consisting of beer and frozen dinners, the opening salutations of a suicide note, a silk pouch of blue pills, then something living, something making sound, a little girl found alive in the rubble of what had once been a house. When rescue workers lifted the debris away and discovered the girl safely contained in a pocket of air under cinder blocks and wooden beams and shingles and a refrigerator, she was so slathered in dirt that her eyes were crusted closed and her pale hair was bark brown. She didn't know her own name or her family's name, but identification was close by. She was curled up asleep in the rubble using a mangled purse as a pillow. And inside that purse was her dead mother's excessive credit card collection and photo ID. That's how they determined who I was. All I knew was that it must have been the end of the world and somehow I'd survived. I was seven. I read how old I was somewhere, or else I wouldn't have known for sure. And the town I lived in was my entire world, even if now, a decade later, I struggle to recall the specific arrangement of features on people's faces, people I'm supposed to be related to, or the look of the place itself, the spread of its streets. There's this shallow pocket of air in my memory where roads used to be, where my house would have been if I could only remember what my house looked like. My aunt wants to know where I last saw her sister, my mother, if she was hiding in the root cellar with me, which was a safe enclosure dug out under the house, and if so, why didn't she survive? I always say, I don't know. These questions are what keeps my aunt from meeting my eyes. She knows I know. That's why my uncle never spanked me the way he did his other kids when we all misbehaved, why he keeps his hands off me and his distance from me and always has. I share a room with Misha. It's why I've woken in the night and found her cheek turned toward me, her eyes trained on me in the dark, like I've swallowed a bomb and she's listening to me tick. When you're the only one not taken, I guess some people assume there must be a reason why. Were you unwanted, spit back out with the trash? Or did you do something, something terrible, something heartless, something no one else would dare do to make sure you got to stay? My cousins and I stopped playing Tornado years ago. I guess it got too real. It happens now, 10 years after the tornado I lived through. It started happening this spring. The feeling that it wants me back or I want it. It starts with a loss of air, a blackout curtain drawn down over my eyes. My lungs feel smaller than they should be, like two dried peas. I have to sit down. I hold my head in my hands and wait for the static, the numb feeling inside me to pass. It does, but it always takes some part of me with it. Now I'm at the game. I'm perched on the very top row of bleachers, there beside Desiree, with nothing bracing our backs to keep us from falling off. The match we're watching is going on below, the marching band playing with half the effort they use for football games, since it's only soccer. It's here at some point that a gust of wind comes from up above to ruffle our hair, and it feels nice at first. I'm watching the wobbling pyramid of cheerleaders and the gold glinting tubas and the school mascot galloping up and down the bleachers wearing the maroon jumpsuit and the horse's head. I'm listening to Desiree say how CJ is the worst goalie our school has ever seen, and how does he expect to keep a ball from going in the net if he comes to the game so loaded. She laughs in delight when the opposing team scores another goal, but I don't laugh. I can't. It's when the cheer rises from the other side of the field that it comes over me. 
It's happening again. At first I'm only dizzy like usual, and I grip the edge of the bleachers and wait for it to pass. But there's something else this time, something that's dropped down on me like it's leaped from a zero to six scoreboard glowering over the home bleachers. A living, breathing thing I have to wrestle off of me. I hear nothing except a series of words newly, planting in my, newly planted in my head. It's coming. I used to think that the way to live on, to keep on living after a disaster was to remove its loud and dirty memory from your mind. You do this after from a safe distance, after the rescuers carried you out, after they made sure you were still breathing and got the blood off and put the bandages on and gave you a bologna sandwich and you devoured it even though it had mustard and you hate mustard, after they gave you new clothes to wear, after they broke it to you that you lost your mom and your stepdad and your little brother, after you discover you're all that's left, that you were spared, after you realize that when the world ended you were still here. But it's always on your mind when it feels partly your fault. It follows you everywhere, nipping at your heels. Beside me, Desiree keeps laughing. She wipes tears from her eyes and says the game could only be more glorious if the cheer zombie on the top of the pyramid would just fall flat on her face already. How beautiful would that be, right, Kate, she says, nudging me. Crash, boom, she adds with glee. I guess, I say. I don't want to admit to anything. Just look at them, she says, sneering. She cups her mouth in her hands and chants out over the crowd, fall already, fall, fall. She's not trying to curse the other team's cheerleaders. She means the cheerleaders directly below us at the bottom of the bleachers, the ones wearing maroon and white. The cheerleader at the pinnacle is bright blonde like a sunspot. She lifts her arms in a wide V. As we're watching from high up in the sidelines, the bright blonde cheerleader at the top of the pyramid does drop, but in a synchronized stunt meant to be caught by two girls below. She lands with a tight smack and stands up on her own two feet. She smiles at the sky in triumph. Desiree clocks me with her elbow. You despise those bitches, what's wrong with you? She's looking me over and I'm wondering who she sees. I undo a button at my neck, two buttons. Three, four. Girl, she says, you all right? When I close my eyes, sometimes I see nothing. I feel nothing. I hear nothing. Just wind. A whistle blows, a piercing note almost too high for human ears to capture, and the game is over. CJ and a couple friends are charging up the bleachers. There's talk of how blotto CJ is and how Coach Hoseman should kick him off the team, and talk of what we'll do now that the game is over. The guys try to catch my eye like they always do, but I'm careful to look at places where their gazes can't connect with mine. A thread poking out of a shoulder seam, a number emblazoned on a t-shirt. Sometimes eye contact feels as physical as the touch of a hand. You did so good out there, baby, Desiree teases, then cracks up because CJ actually believed her. It's when Desiree says that once CJ graduates this spring, maybe the soccer team will actually win a game for once, that I become aware of someone shouting at us, shouting at me. A short maroon skirt comes into view. The guys on the bleachers part to let her through. It's Misha Plonsky, the pinnacle of the pyramid. She's also my cousin. I get a flash of her face from some distant memory, red and choking with laughter as I crawl out from under a ping pong table. Her face is far more serious now. I live at her house with her family. I'm in her life whether she wants me to be or not. She could bury me with every useless thing in her family's closets and I'd still be here. Misha and I share the same hair color, 
pale blonde, a shade that looks white in direct sunlight. Otherwise, she is as pink as she was in my memory, with faint freckles covering nearly every patch of skin and strong, stocky arms and legs. My own skin is blue in certain light, and my body's all knobs and knees and angles, so I don't think we look that much alike at all, except from a distance. In a crowd, we can look like the same person if all you can spot is one of our heads. Misha, Misha shoves out her hand with the palm open. Keys, she says. Can't find mine. Need yours. She means my set of car keys. She's always losing hers. It's technically her car, a white Honda hatchback that came with the ribbon in the driveway on her birthday, but my uncle makes her share the car with me. We both have a set of keys. Misha, don't you think you could ride home with the cheer team? Des and me were keys, Misha repeats. Her hand is steady, as are her blue eyes, the blue of something unreachable, like a faraway mountain that would take weeks to walk to from where we are in the flatlands of Ohio. Kate, don't let her at Desiree starts, but it's too late. I always cave when it comes to my cousin. I hand over my set of keys, and it's when Misha is walking away, descending the rows of bleachers, that I discover this coherent thought inside me. It's a bad, unbuttoned thought. It's telling me that I want something to keep her from getting to the car. How familiar it feels. How right. Just like Desiree was joking about falling off the pyramid, I guess I simply want Misha to stumble on the bleachers and drop my keys so I can take them back, maybe fall in the dirt and mess up her uniform. It's like how I wanted my father to go away forever, and he did. It's like how I wanted my mother to stop telling me what to do and she never opened her mouth again. Simple thoughts, innocent thoughts, but filled with a sick, scented heat. It's a coincidence, I tell myself at first, that the wind comes right then. But is it? The spool inside me is pulling it closer. There is a wild, whipping howl that grows in force and slams straight into the bleachers, jolting the entire structure. I recall, idly, that the weather reports had given it all clear before the game, but they got it wrong. A storm must have been coming, because it's roaring all around us now, from out of nowhere. It's directly overhead. There's a burst of rain, gushing down on us and then leaving us dry, but that's nothing. It's the continuing battering of wind. The wind that overtakes the field behind the high school, threatening to raise the bleachers from the ground and transport them with us clinging into the glistening depths of Lake Erie. The wind swirls, and I swear it seems to be centering itself around my cousin in her dark red cheer skirt. It's like an animal, the way it knows to come for her, as if all it wants is to devour her. Yes, I think. There she is, right there. I watch as she's taken, lifted from the bleachers into the swirling sky. She's forced up from the bottom, as if her teammates have her feet, but there are no teammates to spot her and there is nothing under her feet. She climbs into the air, held by nothing, her arms out grabbing nothing, the nothing flapping and slapping at her clothes, trouncing her hair. Bleachers are far below her now, the flashing zero of the home team's score at level with her bright blonde head. She writhes in the wind and then straightens. She's suspended, her body gone still, her eyes on me. I find myself moving toward her, my arms reaching up and out for her, but my fingers can only graze the toe of one white sneaker. Then they can't even latch onto that. 
because she's lifted beyond the reach of my fingers into the rattling, shuddering, shuddering roar at the heart of the windstorm. I've never seen anything like this before. Or wait, have I? I have. There's a whistling answer inside me like when a sound travels through a cavern and into the light, louder as it comes, so loud that when it reaches you, it bowls you over. I'm not sure if Misha knows, but sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I think she's always known. We'll be alone, like that time down in the basement when I was starting a load of my laundry and she was grabbing some of her own from the pile her mother had already done and folded for her. We didn't mean to both be down there at the same time, but neither of us made a move to leave. It was here in the dim of the basement where she said the things she couldn't say to me upstairs in sunlight. My mom talked to her, she started, the day of the tornado, before the phone service went out. Oh, I said as I stuffed my dirty clothes in the washer, I didn't have to ask who she meant. The only person my aunt, Misha's mother, ever speaks to me about is my mother her older sister by a year. She barely even speaks to me about myself. Misha waited, taking careful note of my expression. Then she continued, want to know what she said, what she told my mom? She said you locked the door. You were inside and you wouldn't let her in. She said you laughed. She said you stood inside with the door locked and you laughed at her. What door, I said, pretending. I was so little. Anyone would think I was innocent. You know the door, Misha said. My mom told me the door to the cellar, under the house. Mo my mom was on the phone with her before the lines went down. You were inside, and you locked Aunt Wanda out, and you laughed at her. She was pounding on the door, and you wouldn't open it. My mom heard you. She was listening until the phone cut out. She told me. I shook my head. She said you'd pretend not to remember. I switched the dryer on and let it rock and spin, building a barrier of noise between us. The noise brought me back, like Misha's mention of the door. After my mom got swept away, after she was gone into the wind, her mouth wide open before it closed forever, I went out into it, into the wind. I wanted to feel it. I wanted to see if it would hurt me too, like I wanted it to hurt everyone else. I ran until the tornado got me, enveloping me in a whipping frenzy of dust, and then there was nowhere to run. I stood in the tornado's eye, walled in by wind, in there, it was hot and dry, and the world slowed. The noise fell away, and the air grew thick enough to walk on, like an invisible set of stairs leading up to the sunroof at the top, where a blink of golden light shone in. I was inside the tornado, and I don't remember any wind then at all. All movement fell away, and I was still. I could hear everything, even things I couldn't ever hear before. The cries for help, the dog barking, the farmhouse being lifted up and away. It felt like I was a part of the wind, and the wind was a part of me. It felt like we were doing all this destruction together. The wind was here again now on the soccer field. I moved here to live with my aunt and uncle, and it took some time to find me, but it did follow. It smells the same. It sounds the same, pounding in my ears. It touches me so lightly, just the same. Last time, it took my mother and my brother and stepfather, and it wanted, and I wanted it to. This time, it has my cousin. Misha's up in the air screaming, but the guys with me, CJ's friends, have turned away, battling the gale. CJ has Desiree hugged to his skinny chest. Does no one else see Misha? There are people all around us, soccer players from both teams, and band members with their trumpets and their tubas. 
families with pennants and coaches with whistles, colorful blurs of cheerleaders with shaggy pom-pommed arms, but no one's looking up at the sky. They should be. They should witness how high the wind is lifting my cousin. I do know they see her fall because there's the shriek and the crash, and that's when they come running. The storm must have traveled fast, or else it dies its last breath on top of us. I saw how it had Misha, and then I see how it lets her go. Thank you. So that story has not been published yet. <clears throat> it's not finished, and when it, I'm sure she'll let us know. No, we'll let us know when it's published and where. So anyway, we're going to take a 10-minute break, have a drink. Um, KGB has been very faithful, and we're faithful to them. Buy something, even if it's a soft drink, it's okay. We don't, they don't charge us for coming here. So please have yourself a drink and relax, and we'll be back in about 10 minutes. How you doing, everyone? We're, we're going to get started with the, the second uh, part of the series. Um, so uh, before we continue, just want to mention that Word Bookstore has books for sale in the back. They have uh, The Walls Around Us and uh, uh, Keeney's book, uh, When the World Wounds. I think they have one copy. So uh, please go ahead and, and you know support uh, the bookstore and you support the authors. Um, Ellen, Ellen, you said all the all. Um, I, I usually go first, so like I have my spiel, and now I'm all messed up. So I, know, I don't know what to say. Um, are we still See, gonna do it? We're gonna do a right. story Yeah. So we uh, basically, uh, you know, it costs a little bit of money for us to run this. Not that much. Basically, what we do is every month we uh, give the authors a stipend, and we tip the bar, and then we take the authors out to dinner. Right? We tip the bartenders. So. Um, we did it like three, four years ago, and we, we, did it, we got a, a substantial amount, so we haven't had to do a fundraiser in a while, but we're running out of money. I think there's literally $500 left, so um, it'll probably last like three months. At, um, it costs us about $110, 120 a month, around there. So, um, I never go into so much detail. That's right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Transparency. I'll give you my, uh, I'll release my tax returns. <laughs> anyway, um, so, so what we usually do is we, hold, we have a fundraiser every few years, and uh, we do it through Kickstarter, and if you, you know, uh, donate X amount, you get a specific prize, and we have all these cool prizes, we, we you know, uh, all the uh, authors who've read here in the past will, will donate, usually donate something. A, a good uh, fraction of them will, will have cool things. Um, I think I've said this before, but like one year or a couple years, Neil Gaiman gave us keyboards that he supposedly wrote Maybe Sandman keyboards. on. Maybe keyboard. Right. He <laughs> might have wrote Sandman on. Um, we had the carnivorous uh, terrarium. Which we won't have again because that he's in that. Mad at us. All right, so we won't have carnivorous terrariums this year, but uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of good prizes. I spoke with some people at uh, Tor.com. They might put together a uh, like an ebook package of, of authors who've read a KGB, things like that. Uh, that's still um, up in the air. Right. So if you, tuckerization, where they write your name into a into a short story or a novel. Maybe um, my arms and neck will be twisted, and I'll do a pick my brain, but I don't know. I hate those. Oh, I thought the prize was the twisting of your arms. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They, they could twist your arms. Twist my arm and 
that's yeah, actually, like, actually, you know, a good um, thing. You can put up, uh, Ellen will never take your picture prize. <laughs> that might be worth something. That would be worth a lot of money. Um, our, our writers group, Altered Fluid, I think we've donated a critique or a one or two critiques. So you send us a short story and we'll give you, you know, critique. Uh, some people in the group are uh, right now uh, Kaya Shante Wilson, N.K. Jemison, Mercurio Rivera, Sam Miller, Eugene Myers, etc. So, uh, Alyssa Wong. And, and your masseuse and donated a... they never wanted the massage. They just gave us some money. Can I get the massage? Yes. Well, <laughs> no. So, <laughs> long story short, long story short, fantastic fiction has always been free, right? So all we ask is, you know, if you can, if you can donate something, please do, just to keep the series going. It's so been going gonna, since the late 90s. Start, create a spreadsheet so people can just... Yeah, so I'm going to... If, if you want to donate, you're welcome to donate. Um like a prize for the Kickstarter, I'm going to have a, a form on the site. I'll put a link up on social media, and then you can, you know, blah, 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 fill it out and let us know. Um, okay, enough with the uh, business. Let's get on to our next reader. Our next reader is Kini Abura Salam. She's a writer, painter, and traveler from New Orleans, Louisiana. Her work is rooted in eroticism, speculative events, and personal freedom. Her fiction and essays have been included in such publications as Dark Matter, Mojo, Conjure Stories, and Colonize This, as well as Essence, Utney Reader, and Miss Magazines. Her first short story collection, Ancient Ancient, was a co-winner of the 2012 James Tiptree Jr. Award, and her latest book, When the World Wounds, is a collection of speculative short stories. Here is Keen. Thank you, Matt. Um, I really enjoyed Nova's reading, and uh, because she gave us a um, disaster in the form of tornadoes, I'm going to read uh, from the beginning of um, When the World Wounds has a novella in it um, about New Orleans post-Katrina, so I will read an excerpt um, from that. Um, okay. It's called Because of the Bone Man. The rocks love the touch of air on their sharp points. With the seasons of the wet winds passed and the mugginess swept away, the air was full of a delicious coolness that the rocks loved to bathe in. But a man, long and gangly, had draped himself over them, pressing his limbs into their gaps. They hated his weight and the oblivious way he smothered them in his slumber, clogging the soothing emptiness that surrounded them. It was difficult to wake him, but if they really tried, they could do it. They had to harden their edges, focus on their points, and push as hard as they could against his bones. That he was bony was a thing that the rocks knew. When they woke him, poking at his layers of skin and muscle, he would break contact and rise up from among them. Then the blessed breeze would be free to brush against their hard, grainy facets again and again. Each time the man woke, he would stand on the rock's uneven surfaces and stare into the dark, murky waters of the canal. When he was still like that, his face blank, his jaw hard, he seemed as if he were one of them, sturdy, unmoving, timeless. But the stillness would always end. He would turn his back to the canal and push off the rocks, scrambling upward until he reached the top of the levee. Then there was nothing more for the rocks to know. They would never roll up to the top of the levee and gaze at the land on the other side. They would never know 
that as the man stood atop the levee, staring at the land on the dry side, there was nothing to see but rubble. Whenever the man sighed, the rocks felt a barely perceptible ripple in the air around them. They did not know that the rippling air came from the sudden shock of pain that pierced him each time he laid his eyes on the sea of debris that seemed to stretch on forever. The rocks did not know pain, but they knew silence. They knew absence. They knew the moment the man slipped away from them, pitching himself into a run down the grass that covered the dry side of the levee. His feet tensed to stop him from tumbling. He chanted to protect himself from the deep hollows of silence that lay before him. Let's go get him. Let's go get him. He repeated the chant over and over, imagining a ghostly syncopation of foot stumps and tambourine slaps rounding out the whisper of his words. Every morning, the destruction washed over him as if it were a new thing. And every morning, he beat back the panic by holding on to the chant's intonations. Sometimes the chant could not soothe him. On these days, no matter how forcefully he chanted, he couldn't dam up the memories that lapped at his brain. On those days, speeding down the levee was the same as somersaulting backwards in time. He was surrounded by the chaos all over again, the winds and rains pounding his father's house, the churning water spilling over from swollen waterways to break levees and pummel houses in their rush through neighborhoods. Now that the structures had been soaked and knocked off their foundations, he was trapped in this demolished landscape. Trying to ignore the sound his sanity was making as it slipped from his grasp was a daily, desperate task. The city was his oxygen, and he was its heartbeat. He believed in its seasons and its rituals. To see it lying in shambles, gutted like a catfish, was a horror his mind could not assimilate. He knew there was only one way to rebuild, one force that could jolt the city back into functioning, back to its parade of decrepit ways. And the only thing to be done was to carry on. He returned to the rambling spread of destruction, reading the wreckage by its markers, a parade of empty concrete stairs that dotted the debris, relics of a time before the storm when the land held neat rows of homes, shotgun structures, camelbacks too, houses that had held all manner of wonderful, troubled, fascinating, fulfilling life. Now these concrete stumps led nowhere and held nothing but air. He had a habit of ignoring the concrete steps, they got under his skin. With their unyielding presence, they felt like some inanimate version of himself. Like him, they had been rendered mute. Nothing more than footprints, unmoving pieces of proof that before the roofs collapsed and walls shattered, there was a home here and there and a few more over there. On this day, for the first time, as he waded through the wreckage, kicking aside wood slats, rusty nails, and soggy insulation, he spied a set of concrete stairs that was not empty. He struggled past everything splintered and waterlogged in his path to get a closer look. There was something golden and glinting beckoning him. When he neared the stairs, he saw a golden pendant on top of the stairs' flat concrete platform. He rested his foot on the bottom stair and paused. Wild imaginings of the people who had lived there burst into his mind. Had they been happy? Did they love the city as much as he did? Were they able to breathe now that they had been swept away by the storm? Or were they trapped in a festering shelter or exiled in some far-flung state? Against his will, an itch to hold the pendant flared across his palms. He mounted the stairs, pushing through the feeling that he was walking across a grave. As he climbed, each step felt as if he were leaving footprints on something sacred. 
On the top step, an invisible wall forced him to stop short. Incomprehension, then rage surged up in him. What if the pendant was the thing that could free him? He pounded on the air, both hands balled into fists, but as if the air had solidified, his fists banged against a smooth, flexible surface that only bent slightly at his touch. He banged harder and was shocked into stillness when a flash of light erupted. The light sizzled into the shape of a house. Within the blazing structure, the bone man was stunned to discover where the weight of a house once rested was the slight body of a child. He tensed his muscles and gave a mighty shove against the ghostly house. With a pop, the walls gave way, and at the same instant, the child snapped awake. When the child looked around, his face slack with sleep, he saw that he was sitting on a tiny island of concrete, surrounded by debris as far as the eyes could see. The child's face tightened and his eyes widened. Then his eyelids began to a rapid fluttering as if he were being flooded with memories. The pendant forgotten, the bone man kneeled next to the child. He could not stop the horror of reality from slowly filtering in. The flattened houses, collapsed roofs, and battered trees, none of it could be erased. And for anyone marooned here, none of it could be ignored. Before he could reach out to the child, the bowman felt a few droplets of water splatter his shoulder. He looked up, expecting dark clouds. Instead, he saw a flat, undulating patch of murky water hovering overhead. The bowman stared up at it, his mind scrambling to make sense of what he was seeing. The patch of water swooped closer, and suddenly the bowman could see a clear, crisp image in the rippling water. He found himself fro frozen in place, looking right into the eyes of a young boy. The child on the platform next to him began to well, wail. The bowman felt the crying child's growing hysteria, but he could not look away from the hovering patch of water. In the water, in the, water the boy peeking out of him was standing in an attic, staring out through a small window. The boy's house was surrounded by intact structures, and on the roof above his head, a man and a woman waved desperately into the blue sky. The boy was still, staring at the bone man blankly while stuffing his fist into his mouth. The bone man stood. He wanted to soothe the mania flickering in the boy's eyes. He wanted to calm him so that there was no need for the boy to gnaw at his knuckles. The cries of the child next to him were sharpening into wild howls, but the bone man could not turn to tend to him. The boy in the attic was unraveling, his expression growing tighter and tighter, radiated awareness, as if he knew death was coming, just as soon as the floodwaters rose high enough to drown him. I think I'll stop there. Okay, so that's the opening of the novella, Because of the Bowman, it has three acts, and it gets into Mardi Gras, and you know, gentrification and everything you want to talk about, you know, <laughs> everything you need to know. Um, okay, so this story is a short short called The Malady of Need. Opens the collection. He would have looked at you like he knew all your truths. You would have wanted to unearth the secrets you saw buried in his eyes. You'd have caught his glance and your dick would have gone stiff. You would have imagined him licking your chest your ankles, his own perfect lips. You would have traded a week's worth of protein to get your work detail changed, changed, to shatter the barriers between you, to ride with him only a breath away. Had you any gods, you would have thanked them for the nutters who were always trying to escape. Even as your shackled hands were pulled tight over your head, you would have felt love for the lockdown. 
When the lights cut, you would have eased yourself forward, slipping, ahead, slipping around the others, easing your tether ahead as you moved into his orbit. He would have whipped around when you stood behind him, then shushed you when you tried to explain. He would have brushed against you and you would have swayed with him, surprised to feel the tug of want stirring in your loins. When the shuttle lights blinked back on, he would have sighed before forcing blankness back into his face. You would have been left with tremors, tiny spasms whispering your need. You would have begun to starve yourself. You would go without to nourish him. You would bring him only the best of your rations, long grasshoppers roasted crunchy, thick red caterpillars, the ones with the sweet meat, it would be the only time you would have been able to touch him in the few seconds after your hands had been released from the shackles. You would have smiled as he slipped your food into his zip suit. It would have pleased you to think of the objects you had handled resting against his skin. He would have been thick with pounds of flesh that could cushion all your hates and angers. You would have lost hours slack-jawed, slack staring into space, fantasizing about the press of his flesh. He would have started to make demands. He would have wanted you to mark yourself, to draw blood. He would have wanted to see the scabs, the thin lines that prove how much you want him. You would have begun to enjoy it. It would have felt electric to think of him as you severed your skin. As you bled, you would have imagined him alone in his bunk, his fingers doing the work you had been dying to do. Your thoughts of him would have become incessant. You would have been thinking about him when they came for you in the night. You would have been desperate to cling to your thoughts of him as they shackled you to the rack. You'd have strained to remember the contours of his mouth as they plunged the tubes in your back. You'd have tried to recreate his scent as the machine began to whir. They would have begun to drain your blood as you were imagining yourself slipping inside him. Then the pain would have overwhelmed you. You would have gone slack as everything around you melted away. He would have known, as soon as he had seen you, he would have known that they had come for you. You would have wanted to stare at him, to drink in the vision of him to feed your sanity but you would not have been able to bear it. You would have lowered your head so he could not see the mania in your eyes. You would not have known how he did it, but you would have known that he found a way to force the shuttle to screech to a stop. As the shackles went slack and the voices of the others rose around you, he would have come. He would have freed your wrists and touched his tongue to yours. You would have fought it. You would have tried to remember where you were, but he would not have relented. He would have dragged your buried sobs to the surface you would have lost yourself under the press of his lips. He would have made visions flash in your mind. Touching him, you would have remembered what the sky looked like, the taste of fresh fruit, the feel of water on your skin. You would have wanted to stop. You would not have wanted to be this naked, this disarmed. You would have lost yourself in the slickness of his body, in the work, in the friction. The itch of the compound would have dissipated against your will. The burn of the electric wristbands would have faded. You'd have straddled him and pummeled him with frantic thrusts, as if you wanted to devour him, as if you wanted to recreate him, then spit him out, reborn. When the shuttle jerked back into motion, you would not have been able to look at him. Slipping your wrists back into the shackles felt like insanity, like suicide. As you worked, his scent would have gnawed at your nostrils. You would have felt as if his dark waters were rising over your body, as if you were drowning in him. In the morning, you will erase him from existence. You will let the jay's drudgery make a meal of your heart. You will withdraw. You will lock away all softness, all surrender. When the malady comes, you will clench the corners of your lips. You will go tense as it straddles your shoulders and chokes you with your own need. You will roll over and stroke your hardness, 
You will come in silence, consumed by dread. true to the title, When the World Wounds, all these stories are like dark and desperate. So that is the end of that. I'm just going to read one more small thing from the first collection, Ancient Ancient, so that we can all just feel a little bit of hope. <laughs> small bit of hope. Uh, which I haven't read in a while, so I have to find it. Okay. It's called Debris. Debris has a bad effect on me. It's in my heritage. Everyone knows about the great Limion who got dust in her nasal holes and spent the rest of her life bequeathing her bones to cripples. It was harmless enough when it began. She offered a few of her decrepit digits to a little boy who was missing a foot. Sharing is a good thing, grandmother told us, hobbling proudly through the house, the model of benevolence. We stopped admiring her charitable spirit the day she was built home with no skeletal structure from her pelvis down. She waved off our horror by claiming she'd been using her legs less and less. When she was down to just her skull, her daughter, my mother, put my grandmother's head on a marble desk and locked her in the altar room. It is legend how my mother kept my grandmother's eye sockets clean with the pure white feather of a cockatoo. She often sent me to the forest to pick marigolds to stack high around grandmother's skull. Grandmother loved the smell of them. She told me so every time I entered the house with an armful of the fragrant weeds. After my grandmother's head had been sitting in the altar room for a month, my mother realized she was dying, not because of her missing body, but because she was bored. Mother brought grandmother into the living room and positioned her right in front of the window. There, grandmother sat happily for a week until dad caught her promising her skull to an epileptic candy vendor. Mother couldn't bear the thought of locking grandmother up again, so dad came up with the idea of sitting her in the middle of the living room facing the kitchen. Grandmother didn't have much visual stimulation, but she could hear the sounds of the street. While staring at boiling pots and waiting for one of us to keep her company, grandmother amused herself by mounting day-long monologues in response to the whizzing, clicking, and chattering that wafted into the house through the window. One November, Trusha decided we should suit up and go down to Earth for the Days of the Dead. The humans make so much mischief during those days, they don't notice us creaking through on our bones. My costume had seen better days. Trusha said it was my sin that had made me run down my robes into tatters. Lorky doesn't believe in sin. He doesn't believe in costumes either. Easy not to believe in anything when you're always aligned. When I started slipping out the door that November night, I swear I heard grandmother whisper, be ill. I stopped and looked back, but she was silent. I stared at the cracks that worried their way down the back of her skull, but they too were silent. Grandmother said nothing more, so I turned and slipped out the door. Down on earth, we looked for the cemetery with the most lights. We figured the busiest graveyards were best. While people drank, ate, and cried for their dead, we could sneak in unnoticed. We found what we were looking for in Oaxaca, a tiny little desert town in the middle of six kissing mountains. Lorky's black velvet cape covered us as we rushed into the swirl of activity on a dark, dank wind. The minute we landed, I started trembling. That happens whenever I find myself in close proximity to humans. They have the best emotions. Their feelings are so sharp and hysterical and self-propelling. Their auras make me vibrate. With the candlelight swimming around us, the buzz of voices, and the emotions flying through the air, I felt a sense of intoxication, a grandeur. 
How can I explain what it felt like to dance with a stilt walker whose stilts were thicker than my femur? How can I tell you about the eerie, flesh-like shadow that shrouded Trusha's cheeks as she laughed at Lorky, yanking people's souls out of their chests and juggling them with one long-boned hand? How can I describe the moist succulence of a tiny child's fear when it glimpsed my weathered, pocky bones and swallowed the sight of me with undiluted dread? Trusha thought it funny to pass her hand through people's spines. She would reach into their backs until her wrist bone was buried in their flesh. She'd rub the tip of her index finger along their hearts, moaning filthily when their bodies went stiff with pain. While she was enticing me to find a spine to disturb, I felt a sudden chill licking between my fifth and sixth vertebrae. When I turned around, I saw a huge child running towards me. You can't catch me, it yelled. The child did not touch me, but the force of it passing knocked me over. I fell across a grave, and a parade of children yelping in delighted terror ran by. Humans are dirty beings. They never learned how to transcend Earth, especially in their graveyards. The debris kicked up by those murderous little feet covered me in a canopy of dust. This was not the little spray of dirt that, had, that once stuck in grandmother's nasal openings induced her suicidal bone endowment spree. This was huge clumps of dirt. I was clogged. I was suffocated. I was nothing more than a pile of jam joints and rigid bones. Lorky tugged at the bowl of my pelvis. Trusha yanked at my ankle bones, but the debris was stronger than their worry. Trusha pulled harder and harder, but I didn't stir, couldn't stir. Every inch of me was paralyzed. A little girl approached me. Her arms are full of marigolds. She started framing me with them. She stuck some through my ribs, a few under my jawbone, six or seven around my skull. When the earth under me started shifting, Lorky and Trusha couldn't bear it. They didn't stay to see the dirt seizing bits of bone to feed the grave behind, beneath me. They went home. When my body was completely dissolved, I became something else. The spirits that haunt these graves say I am one of them. They roam the confines of the cemetery, licking leaves, drinking morning mist, and planting crazy notions in human flesh. Lorky and Trusha will never return to witness the proof proof that there is breath beyond the bones. Yet when the spirits retire to their graves, I find what's left of me grasping at sticks to scratch symbols in the dirt. Grandmother may never understand the shrieks I now use to communicate, but I must conjure a way to tell her the truth. She must discard her skull. We are more, so much more than elegant skeletal spectacles. I will find a way to whisper it to grandmother. May your cranium be eaten away. There is something else beneath the bone, something indestructible, something nothing, not even debris, can destroy. Thank you. That was really great, Keeney, and uh, thank you, Nova. That was, that was also great. Um, yeah, we have books in the back. Um, so please, you know, um, you know, support the author, support the independent bookstore, and uh, thank you for coming. Uh, we'll see you next next month, and uh, you know, hang around, buy a drink, and uh, yeah, yeah, great, great reading, everyone. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years.
See you next month.